0: Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today?
1: I'm doing fantastic today, Tim, because we are speaking with someone who wrote a great book, a great true crime book. And you know how much I love true crime books. You love true crime books. I'm an open book about it. You need to be an open book about how you feel today. (laughs) Oh,
0: good one. Yeah, (laughs) I'm doing great, Lance. Thanks a lot for asking, especially in such a creative way. I really circled around that one for a while. (laughs) You did. And uh, so we speak with a new friend here today in this episode. Her name is LaDonna Humphrey. She is an author. She's a mom. And she's a private investigator, Lance. And she is really impressive. And she wrote a book called The Girl I Never Knew. Who Killed Melissa Witt? And it is about the tragic and unsolved murder of Melissa Witt. She went missing in December of 1994, and her body was discovered about 45 miles away in January of 1995.
1: And we know that LaDonna's done such a great job. She's been working on it for almost a decade now, and the book, like we said, is great, and... And as we speak with LaDonna, we just see how much work she's put into this, how much of herself she's given to this particular unsolved murder. She's been working on it for about eight years. So I guess you could say we're going on a decade with this and she won't stop. Uh, I don't know if she actually said it in this interview, but she is determined to figure out what happened to Melissa Witt. She's almost become like a kindred spirit to her, which I think is incredible, which I think is an incredible display of empathy.
0: Yeah, it's a... Yeah, it's a crazy case. Yeah, it is a tragic case, Lance. It seems like it should be solvable, even though technically still unsolved. But LaDonna has been on the case, and I trust her judgment. She's been working with police. Melissa Witt's case is still technically unsolved. So you can check out whokilledmissiewitt.com or call 1-800-440-1922 if you have any information on this case. She was found in the Ozark National Forest, and she was 19 years old when her life was taken from her.
1: And be sure to pick up LaDonna's book. You can get that on Amazon. You can just search The Girl I Never Knew, or you can search for LaDonna Humphrey's name. And, uh, yeah, again, this one's a really good one. You're not going to be disappointed.
0: And you can also check out LaDonna's site at thegirlineverknew.com.
1: Tim, if I wanted to listen to this episode plus any other episode of Crawl Space, Ad free, where might I be able to do that?
0: You can go to crawlspace.supportingcast.fm and subscribe to Crawlspace Premium. That's what we do there. And we also bring you a weekly bonus show called The Crawlspace Crypt, where we talk about our lives outside of this and sometimes true crime documentaries and all sorts of stuff.
1: Sounds like a real peek behind the curtain. And it's all for the price
0: of a cup of coffee per month, Lance. We talking that expensive gourmet coffee
1: like Pete's? You know what? It's really more like Folgers, actually. Well, you know what they say. Best part of waking up... Is crawlspace Premium in your cup. Tim, the next thing you're going to tell me is that there's a place where we can access ad-free episodes of our other podcast, Missing.
0: No, you're right. We do have that. It's actually at missing.supportingcast.fm and we do a weekly bonus show over there as well called Hidden Opinions and you can get every episode ad-free. So check those out. There are links in the show notes.
1: And just for the listener's sake, Tim and I actually do have conversations that are stilted and generic in real life too.
0: Okay, everybody, thanks a lot for listening. We hope you enjoy this conversation with LaDonna Humphrey. Make sure to get your tickets to Obsessed Fest.
1: And before we get to our conversation with LaDonna Humphrey, we're going to break real quick for a couple of ads from our sponsors.
2: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify is there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special
0: Welcome to the podcast. LaDonna Humphrey, how are you today?
2: I'm great. Thank you so much for having me.
1: You are more than welcome. And you're more than welcome to come on the show uh, at any point in the future, uh, simply because you expressed how nervous you were to speak with us before this interview. And um, it, that did a little bit for the ego. So I appreciate it.
2: I have three favorite podcasts and you're among the three. So I was completely um, excited about today. So thank you. Thank oh, you. Oh,
0: what a coincidence. What are the other two? We'll cancel them
2: you'll cancel them um true crime garage and um crime okay
1: canceled done <laughs> <laughs> there can only be one
2: <laughs> well top three so this is this is uh my my friends were giving me a hard time today they said i was fangirling so maybe i am but i'm i'm super excited
1: well we're excited too and to be honest um I would be lying if I were to say that I wasn't nervous to speak with you because I always get a little bit anxious speaking with people who have the resume that you do as a writer an investigative journalist. You're a private investigator. And that's um, something that I really hold in high esteem. So uh, I think the, the butterflies are all over the place here.
2: Well, we'll just uh, we'll all be nervous and have a good time at it.
1: <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> well, before we get into Melissa's
0: case, can you tell us a little bit about your uh, history? I guess being an investigative journalist and a private investigator and an advocate for um, victims of crime.
2: Sure. Um, I attended the University of Arkansas, um, and pursued journalism as my degree, and then ended up really shelving it for a very long time. Started a family and, and did some of the traditional things that people do, and finally woke up one morning and said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to, you know, to do, to make a difference. And so, long story short, is that um, I ended up helping to co-found a nonprofit that offered services to um, families that had missing adults. We did that for about a decade until our services were no longer needed. There was the rise of a government database, NamUs, and our um, services sort of phased out. And we wanted to finish strong, and the idea was to um, film a documentary. We ended up choosing the Melissa Witt case, and that's when... um, things changed for me. You know, the minute I met the detectives, I learned about their passion, and then I learned more about the case. I was pretty much hooked and um, determined to get her justice. And so since that, things have kind of progressed. It led me to um, get my PI license and dig deeper into this case than really anybody else ever has. So um, it's nothing that I regret, but been a lot of hard work. And I hope that in the end, it pays off.
1: I want to make sure I didn't mishear that. You received your private investigator license because of this case?
2: Yes. I um, had been working closely with law enforcement and wanted to take it even further for the case. And I really felt like it was important that I was going to you know, be able to get my PI license. So I studied and and I did it. And and here I am. That was last year. So, you know, I'm a year into that. I do take on some other investigative work, but primarily I use it for the wit case.
0: Well, that's really cool. How did you have such a, a good working relationship with law enforcement?
2: You know, it's just a really unique thing. Um, you know, when I went to interview them initially, I was really green to even putting together a documentary, much, you know, much less talking to investigators about a cold case. But what happened um, through that process is that I was sincerely and genuinely seeking their, you know, support and advice to try to learn more about the case. And they saw the efforts that I, you know, had been making on social media growing, you know, all of a sudden, you know, my Facebook page for Melissa, you know, blew up to 14,000 people. And they started seeing that the work was bringing in leads. And so it was a situation where I built some trust. And then I became um, probably, I, I think it's safe to say an equal partner in this investigation, because we all work together now. And, you know, I've been doing this now for seven years with them. And, and we, we just, we've built a fantastic relationship.
0: Wow. How cool. And uh, tell us about the process that you went through to get your PI's license. How long did it take? How many hours did you have to put in and things like that?
2: Um, What I did with that is I interviewed with some PI firms here um, in, in the state that I live in Arkansas and really wanted to partner with one particular. And so they took a chance on me, you know, rookie wanting to try to become a PI and um, started helping me study, putting, putting in the hours before they would even support me to take the test. They wanted to see me put in about 1500 hours. And so I did do that. Um, and then I, you know, I took the test. The test was a lot harder than I had anticipated. Um, you know, It was me and one other person taking the test that day. So it was super nerve wracking um, and you have to make an 80%. And I was just scared to death. But luckily, fortunately, I did. And after that point, then I will continue to put my hours in with the agency. And then I put my hours in working the wit case. So probably at this point, we're close to 4,000 hours.
1: That's incredible. So, Congratulations on that.
2: Thank you. I'm pretty determined. And, you know, I I don't know if you know this about me, but I have seven kids on top of that. So Wow. Um,
1: no, we did not know that now I'm super nervous.
2: <laughs> my uh, my One of my kids just turned uh, 15. And so she knows she's not going to get away with anything. Uh, she told her friends because my mom's a PI. Uh, I thought that was funny.
1: <laughs> That's amazing. I, would, I just want to revisit the law enforcement uh, topic real quick. What advice would you have for others who are in a position that's similar to yours when they're looking at a case that's gone cold and they want to work with law enforcement? Because we find that comes up often where they just have, a, I guess, a, a the wrong approach. They're too enthusiastic. It comes across as being uh, a bit too aggressive. Um, what what advice would you have, if any, for people who are in that position?
2: Actually, people ask me that question a lot. And I really feel like the key to that is, um coming in with no assumptions, you know, ask to meet the currently detective, you know, file your FOIAs and see what happens there. You know, a lot of times they're gonna say no, sometimes they don't, it depends on the state and the department. Um, and then you know, try to build that relationship, but come at it from the perspective that um, you, know, you just wanna help, you know, maybe cite some other examples that you've seen where citizens have gotten involved and been able to bring um, you know, exposure to the case, I always tell people never tell law enforcement you're going to help them solve the case, right? You don't want to put them in a position where they feel that you're coming in knowing everything. And then I suggest that people um, try to get to know the retired detectives if that is the case and and they're out there and you can still contact them, because that's where a treasure of information is going to be. And that's really going to help you learn more about the case. It's going to build some credibility as you. are able to present information that's, you know, valuable back to maybe the currently detective that might be pretty green on the case. And I can give you a good example of that, you know, the current detective on Melissa's case was in preschool when she went missing.
1: Oh, wow.
2: Yeah, so there's a lot of value that this adds to the case when somebody else can come in and kind of bridge that gap. So, just a real unassuming, you know, genuine mode is what I was what I suggest to people.
0: Very cool. Well, good work on all that. And your investigation into Melissa Witt's murder led you to write a book. Can you tell us a little bit about that decision?
2: I can. It's because of COVID. I've, I've blamed it on COVID. But, you know, I'm, I'm home for almost two years, you know, not getting out as much as I want to, you know, things have delayed in our documentary process. And I just couldn't feel stagnant in Melissa's case anymore. And so I wrote up the first three chapters and put an outline together and pitched it to some publishers. It was really just like that. And I had some, um, you know, I had a couple of publishers tell me no, and then I had, you know, two or three, you know, express some real interest. And then it just really went from there. Um, But it really came from that desire that I had to not be stagnant in her case anymore. We really needed to kind of kick it up you know, another notch because, you know, we're knocking, we were knocking on 27 years at that point.
1: And the publisher is a genius book publishing
2: genius. They're very small, um, Mm -hmm. small and mighty, and um, (laughs) they specialize in true crime.
1: Yeah. Very cool. They packaged it. Are they the ones that uh, do like the, uh, the, the packaging, the cover art and everything?
2: So, yes, he took my vision and they created the cover art. And I just really feel like it packs a punch and it tells a story in and of itself. And so um, I was I was really proud of that. I just think they did a fantastic job.
1: Yeah, they they really did. That style really stands out and tells a lot about the story. And it's simple, too.
2: Yeah, I wanted people to be a little bit um know taken aback by the cover and so far that's worked and I you know the more people that can pick up the book because maybe the cover captures their attention the better because we want them to learn about Melissa's case
0: absolutely okay so tell us about her case
2: so Melissa um 19 years old um you know December of 1994 she gets off work Goes home, you know, sees a note from her mom, changes clothes, goes to the bowling alley where her mom is um, bowling on a league and never makes it inside. And um, initially nobody really knew what to think. Melissa's mom just didn't see her at the bowling alley that night and just assumed that she had decided not to come. And so she goes home, you know, waits the night away. You know, Melissa doesn't come home. The next day is really when law enforcement got involved, and it took a couple of days for the major crimes unit to get involved because initially, you know, Melissa was 19. It's not illegal to go missing, Um, and it didn't appear that any kind of crime had been committed, but when the law enforcement agency got involved, they found her car almost immediately. They found signs of a struggle, some blood pools, and that's when the search really began, and unfortunately, that search went on for six weeks until they recovered her body an hour away in the Ozark National Forest.
0: How did they locate her body?
2: You know, that is one of the biggest mysteries around this case. Um, a couple of days before Melissa's body was recovered, um, law enforcement received a call one evening. It was left on an answer machine in the major crimes unit. And it was a grandma and a, what they perceived to, be, perceived to be a young boy, probably her grandson. And she's urging him to tell law enforcement what they found you know, what, what he found, and he says no, and they disconnect the call, and then two days later, the Franklin County Sheriff's Department gets a phone call that two trappers that were going through that area of the Ozark National Forest had stumbled upon initially what they thought was a mannequin lying in the woods, and it turned out to be the body of a young white female. Um, of course, everybody you know, rushes to the scene and and Fort Smith is called because they believe, you know, that they've got their girl there. They believe that it was Melissa. And it turns out through dental records that it was, you know, that part's, you know, a mystery because it's an hour from the abduction site. Um, You know, the trappers had been by there the day before and her body wasn't there. Um, You know, then they go by that morning and it's there. And through the investigation, they were able to determine that Prior to where they found Melissa, her body had been hidden behind a tombstone like rock about 15 feet away from where her body initially, you know, where they where they ended up finding her. And so that that's just been really a very strange part of the case.
0: So you're saying that Melissa's body was um, about 15 feet away from where the trappers found it for months before it was, I guess, assumed that someone moved it the day before the trappers found it, moved it 15 feet?
2: Yes. Um, it's, it's just strange. They, um, whoever killed her had initially hid her body, um, behind the rock and placed some leaves and some other things over her body. And then whoever moved her body, they either stumbled upon it and moved it, which would be gruesome because she'd been out there for six weeks, or it was the killer that returned to the crime scene and moved her body. It, it could go either way. You know, it's we're we're just not sure. And so, you know, they they would have, um, you know, just to be blunt, had to have grabbed her by the ankles and just moved her that fifteen feet and. It's mind boggling that it happened, but we've not ever been able to determine who made that phone call to the major crimes unit. It's possible those people are who stumbled upon her body.
1: How far away was her body found from where she was abducted at the bowling alley?
2: It's just almost 60 miles.
1: And that's on regular highway or is that sort of back roads and rural type um, interstates?
2: There would have been two routes that you could take to get to where they found her body one would have been major highway and then there was some back roads that you could have taken as well we're not really sure which one um the killer chose but that's a long ways away um you know he hit her in the head first at the bowling alley we do know that there was some blunt force trauma it was not fatal that was determined by the autopsy we believe she was unconscious during the entire car ride to those art national forest
1: and what was the weather like because this was december 1st what's the weather like there
2: it was really cold in December. Now on that particular day, it had been warmer on December 1st than typical, but then it goes right into Arkansas. Weather's crazy. It could be warm one day and it's going to be cold the next. And so there were several weeks that she was missing that we had freezing temperatures. We had a lot of rain on the day that she was found. It started out beautiful and then it ended up being this torrential rainstorm with freezing cold weather. So that does a lot to a body that's out into the, you know, in the elements for six weeks.
0: Were there any eyewitness sightings in the parking lot?
2: There were two witnesses. It's almost hard to call them witnesses because they really didn't see enough to be able to help with anything truly. But an 11 year old boy had exited the bowling alley to um, retrieve a school book from his car. He heard a woman screaming, help me. And, but he couldn't see anything else. That's assumed that that was Melissa. And then another witness um, who left the bowling alley, walked to her truck. She couldn't see over the cars, little bitty short girl, could not see over the cars. And she could hear what she believed to be an altercation. And that's believed to have been at the same timeframe that Melissa was being abducted. But that's it. It was a very dark parking lot with no security cameras.
0: We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor.
1: And a thank you to our sponsors. Back to the program. I apologize if I've missed this detail amongst the other details that you've uh, given us so far, but I was curious if there was any indication that her body was brought somewhere else between the bowling alley and where it was found, or is the line of thinking that she was abducted and and killed and dumped immediately?
2: You know, we, we can't say for sure that he didn't make any stops between the bowling alley and those Arc National Forest. But what we do know is that the autopsy report shows us that she'd most likely been out there from day one and what little food was found in her stomach was what she had had for lunch that day. They could determine, you know, they believed it was the chicken from Chick-fil-A. So it's really unlikely that anything else happened. Um, Soil and leaves and other things that were found far down into her airway because she was strangled face down, those were native to the Ozark National Forest. So she was either strangled at that location or very close to the location and then we believe that she was dumped at that particular place because, and I've been there many times. It, it is like a tombstone, this rock that she was behind. And so we think that that meant something to her killer, um, some sort of sick, twisted meaning. But yeah, I think it happened pretty quick, unfortunately. I think there was a sexual assault between there. She was found completely nude.
0: Is that confirmed that there was a sexual assault?
2: Unfortunately, um, it is not confirmed she had been out in the elements for so long and um you know the odd thing about her body is that the upper half was really decomposed and the lower half wasn't it was because her body was almost folded in half behind that rock and so there was some small animal activity nothing large but there was just not enough to determine if that had happened to her
1: you said her body was almost folded in half are you the, the way a body would naturally fold, like would bend over?
2: Yes, very and That's the way they kind of tucked her in behind the rock.
1: How big was the rock? You said it was like a tombstone, but was it bigger than a tombstone?
2: Well, I mean, it's an oversized rock. So yeah, I guess in all fairness, I'd have to say yes. It's a it's a fairly good size rock. And the way the, the terrain is there behind the rock, it sort of drops down a little bit. And um, I don't know how familiar you are from, with Arkansas, but in the Ozark National Forest, it's just, it's crazy. It's got inclines and, um, you know, valleys and, and highs. And so it dropped down enough that you weren't, you wouldn't, you'd be able to kind of tuck her in there, like in, inside a pocket.
1: And you said that it was your belief that maybe this particular location had some meaning for the perpetrator. Is this also the belief of law enforcement?
2: It is. They've always believed that, um, the most likely scenario was it was, a man that was local to the area or someone that had frequent frequented the Ozark national forest to hunt, to fish, to hike. Um, and, you know, being at that area at that particular place, you know, that would be a natural resting place. You know, you, you could potentially set up like a deer camp there. There's a lot of different things that that could have been to somebody. And, um, it's pretty eerie being out there, honestly.
0: Yeah. Tell us a little bit more about that. Is there, um, are there hiking trails right there? Is there a lot of foot traffic in that vicinity right there? Immediate vicinity?
2: No, this is off of a logging road. Um, it's it's pretty remote location. Um, it's it's just, and it's way off the main road. You had to have known where you were going to get there, especially under the cover of night to be able to get there, do what they did and then get back out. It wasn't just some random serial killer. This, this was somebody that knew what he was doing. And so you know, it's, it's lonely. It's, it's a lonely area and, um, it must've been pretty frightening for her.
0: Yeah. How was her body as a Jane Doe connected to her missing persons case? How, How did that connection get made?
2: They were able to identify her through dental records pretty quickly. So I think that by the next morning that the assumption was of course, when they found her that it was Melissa, there wasn't anybody else with that description missing. Um, but to be sure, obviously, you know, they, they had to check the dental records. So, and, and then it was just, you know, they had to notify the family.
1: And thinking along the lines that this location could be something or somewhere that a hunter would know, is there a uh, license that is needed to hunt in that particular section of the national forest?
2: Depending on what season that is, you, you know, if it's deer season, turkey season, whatever, you, you have to have different kinds of licenses. And so those were checked um, and rechecked. I even went back and checked, you know, digging back into this just to see what might be interesting. So, you know, it's, it's possible that, um, you know, it was somebody that was used to hiking in the area as well. Or, you know, college kids often would go deep into the Ozark National Forest back in the 90s, um, you know, to drink or to smoke marijuana. And so that's that's a possibility, too.
1: And were there any other attempted abductions or any abductions after the fact or around that time? I know you said that they the assumption was that that was her because there wasn't any other missing person who res- or matched that description at the time. But how about after, or in like a, 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 larger, um, radius?
2: I'm super glad that you asked me that question because nobody ever does. And so I don't get to talk about that. Um, but a, f- a few weeks after Melissa went missing, um, in Van Buren, just the city over, um, a man who was a resident of Ozark, tried to kidnap a girl from a parking lot. And inside the van, they found rope and duct tape and, you know, all the things to take a girl. And he was looked at really, really, really closely. You know, he ended up dying, I think just before I got involved in this case. And they even tried to talk to him on his deathbed because he would fit the profile. So that did happen. And it does haunt me that that happened because we don't have any real answers to him. And then the second thing that happened six months after Melissa was recovered, Morgan Nick went missing from Alma, Arkansas, which is just the town over. She was a six-year-old girl. And that's, you know, been a, you know, a case that made national headlines. And so, you know, I know there was an effort for investigators to see if there was a connection between the two cases, but no connection was ever made.
0: And you said Morgan was six years old?
2: She was six. Yes.
0: Was she abducted from a parking lot or was there some similarity in that?
2: There was some similarity, um, in terms that it was a parking lot. She was, um, at a little league ball game with her mom and was dumping sand from her shoes and was just never seen again. But you know, what makes it unlikely is There there just aren't that many predators. I mean, it happens that are, you know, I guess a crossover. They would take any age, you know, that crime of opportunity. It it does happen. It's pretty rare. And, you know, the FBI profile, pretty confident that Morgan was taken by a pedophile that most likely assaulted her and and murdered her immediately. It doesn't mean the cases aren't connected. I just think it's pretty unlikely. I think we would know that connection by now. I, I would like to believe we would.
0: Yeah, I mean, the the way that Melissa was abducted is so unique. I feel like from a, a parking lot, you know, public area, that seems like a, sort of a high-risk maneuver for an abductor or a would-be killer. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess um, it seems like a serial case, I guess, is, is kind of what I'm saying. Like, that person, I would think, would have tried that again afterwards, having been successful, um, with Melissa's case.
2: You know, I agree with that. You know, I I think that in all likelihood, what happened is that the person that came to the parking lot that night knew Melissa, they knew each other. There was some sort of confrontation. Maybe she, it was a jilted lover. Maybe she had spurned some advances. And I think an argument ensued because we do know there was an argument. I think that, um, he did not like how feisty she was. And I think out of frustration, he hit her on the head. A head wound is going to bleed. Maybe he had a criminal record. Maybe he didn't. Maybe the blood scared him, knocked her unconscious. And he, from the way the blood trail was in the parking lot, you know, the little dots of blood and pools of blood, we know that he drug her or carried her and either put her in the back seat of a car or in the back of a truck or a Bronco and he drove away with her. And I, I honestly think it was somebody that Melissa knew on some level.
0: What makes you think that?
2: I think that because of the seven years I've worked on this case, I think there are some pretty scary people that were in Melissa's life that she wasn't aware of who they truly were. They've gone on to commit other crimes. Obviously not just like this, but there have been people in her life that were you know, have gone on to be abusive to women and downright dangerous, stalking them in parking lots, Um, you know, some pretty scary things. I just think based on that argument that they had that night, it was with somebody she was familiar with, you know, the witness that I told you, the little short girl who couldn't hear, I mean, couldn't see, but could hear the argument. She likened it to maybe a couple breaking up or just a familiar, there was a familiarness there. And I believe that was Melissa and I believe that whoever approached her that night, didn't like what she had to say, which was probably no.
1: Yeah. And I'm curious what her social circle was like,
2: you know, and that's um, a lot of people ask me that too. And Melissa, Melissa did not have any enemies. She was friends with everybody. Um, She was real active in her church. She'd been a cheerleader. She was um, pretty popular girl, but all of her friends and the people that she grew up with were from all sorts of socioeconomic levels. There was not anybody that Melissa would not befriend. And so, you know, that, you know, has made it hard when you have to go and, and look through some of these people that she was associated with, that she was so naive. She had no idea th- about some of the people that she was connected to. You know, there were some friends that she had that were into drugs and, and some doing some things that she wasn't into, but it was just, you know, I say that to just express that Melissa was a friend to absolutely everybody.
1: And what about her family situation?
2: She lived with her mom. Um, her mom, she'd always lived with just her mom. Marianne was single and they were exceptionally close. She, her dad, um, lived in a neighboring state of Oklahoma. And, um, you know, they, they had a relationship and she had some older half siblings from that relationship, but for the most part, it was just Melissa and her mom.
0: And, uh, any significant others or, or boyfriends that, uh, in, in Melissa's life at that time?
2: You know, I know you don't know what it's like to be a 19 year old girl, but I do. And, um, you know, just pretty much crushing on a lot of people. You know, everybody was cute and nothing real serious. She had had some relationships and some breakups and she wrote about that extensively in her diary. And so obviously that diary is pretty key to this case as well. But no, there was nothing real serious in her life. She was, you know, Melissa was pretty naive. And the best way to explain that is just, you know, an example from her diary. The most she'd ever really done is maybe kiss, kissed a boy gently on the lips and maybe held his hand. I mean, a lot of innocence there. So, um, you know, you think about that kind of innocence being confronted in a dark parking lot at night and, um, you know, someone being aggressive, that'd be, that'd be hard for her to fight.
1: And you did mention that maybe this person didn't like how, I think you said feisty or fiery or, or just basically didn't like her attitude at the time.
2: Yeah, Melissa wouldn't have been afraid to tell anybody what she thought and you could see that in her diary. Yeah. She would have said it in a nice way, but she was also very strong-willed. My best guess is that she had had told a potential suitor that she was not interested.
1: Gotcha. You also mentioned that she was active in her church.
2: She was. She and her mom were at church every Wednesday and Sunday. And, you know, Wednesday night, Sunday morning and Sunday night. And so she um, you know, had an outlook on life that was different than a lot of people at that time. I mean, she wasn't, you know, she wasn't going out and partying and um, having sex and, and smoking and doing all those things. And so, you know, I, I don't want to make it sound like she was, you know, Pollyanna because nobody is right. But she did have a level of, you know, rose colored glasses that she just didn't really understand yet how the world worked.
1: Have you looked into anybody who might have attended those, uh, church, what do you call them? Church, uh, sessions?
2: Oh yes. Extensively. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) I've done a lot of, um, that was actually, I'm glad that you said that too, because that was one of the first things I thought about because so many predators hide, you know, um, behind the, the cloak of religion. And that was very interesting to me.
0: And uh, were you able to develop some uh, persons of interest or or suspects from that list?
2: There's a couple of people that um, were interesting. It didn't really take us anywhere. There's two really, really interesting people. One has not been named, and it, it is somebody that she knew. I can't really say a whole lot about that. The other person that is the top suspect in this case is Larry Swearingen from Texas. He was executed in Texas. Um, in 1998 he kidnapped 19 year old melissa trotter from her community college and in december almost four years to the day when melissa witt was kidnapped and um, he drove her 60 miles away to the sam houston national forest where he strangled her and left her dead body Um, turns out that Swearingen was real familiar with Ozark National Forests. His grandparents lived about two hours away from Fort Smith. And we know that he was in Arkansas within days, just days before Melissa Melissa was murdered.
0: Wow. Okay. So there's some similarities there in the way Swearingen murdered a different um, victim.
2: Enough so that it warranted police to take a really deep dive into that. You know, you've got two 19-year-old girls. They look eerily alike, they're both named Melissa, both active in their churches, both at a community college, and then their bodies are found, you know, they're both kidnapped in December, their bodies found in a national forest. You know, there's a lot there. And I spent years before swearing Jen was executed, doing everything I could to find out, you know, if there was a connection. And he was, he ended up being executed in August of 2019 for the Trotter murder.
1: And you're right. Melissa Trotter does bear a bit of a resemblance to Melissa Witt.
2: Oh, it's, it's uncanny. And before, um, you know, and Swearingen and I had a hate, hate relationship. We really did. I would write to him. He would sometimes write me back. He would then issue me a cease and desist. And this went on for years. I mean, we would, I just wanted him to tell the truth, give us an alibi of where you were, you know, something, and he wasn't going to do it, but, um, Prior, about four months prior to his execution, I um, spent every week calling, emailing, faxing, sending letters, doing everything I could to get Montgomery County, Texas to schedule an interview with Swearingen and law enforcement in Fort Smith. I just could not let it go. And finally, they did. They called the Fort Smith PD and they basically said, please call her off. Please make her stop. And we will grant the interview. And so they did investigators go to talk to him you know everybody said oh he won't be able to be quiet he's going to talk your ear off they get him in this room and he says okay fellas what are you here for and um Chris Boyd says well I'm Chris Boyd I'm from Fort Smith Arkansas and he said nope not talking to you let me out of here and he wouldn't say a word and and then he was executed so it was devastating for the case it's really even hard to talk about
0: Wow. And he claimed yeah. innocence in in um, the other
2: case. He did. There was, um, you know, he was a master manipulator. Yeah. You know, there was some question about some evidence. I can tell you that I've read the entire case file for him. I've FOIA'd everything I can. I've spent time in Texas. I did everything I could, and I firmly believe that he killed Melissa Trotter. I, I just do. Did he have anything to do with Melissa Witt? I mean, we just, we can't prove it. You know, we've never been able to place Swearingen in Fort Smith, which makes it difficult. You know I, I, you know, I would add this, that, you know, about three years into this investigation, I had a secret informant come to me from Montgomery County. And they said that when Swearingen was arrested, that they had found a receipt for gas in Fort Smith, Arkansas in December of 94. I was pretty naive and believed it and did everything I could to try to get my hands on that receipt the likelihood that he had a four year old receipt in his stolen truck you know that he had just stolen is probably unlikely but you know I tell you that story just to kind of give you the idea of the links that at least I know I went to to try to prove there was a connection
0: yeah it seems like he could have um, if he had information in Melissa Witt's um murder maybe he could have leveraged that against his uh death sentence in melissa trotter's case you know what i mean
2: yeah he could have gotten a stay another stay yeah. mm-hmm. uh, you know i just i can't explain why he did what he did you know i i worry it's because it was you know he had such a volatile relationship with me and i had pushed so hard to get answers that he just didn't want to talk i mean I, i'll never know Um, for sure. Unless we can prove that he was in Fort Smith, it's always going to be a question mark next to his name.
1: And how about Melissa's family? What's their thoughts on him or any other suspect? And while I'm asking this question, I guess I should back it up a little bit and say, what's your relationship with Melissa's family?
2: Her parents are deceased and um, she does have some cousins that have been in touch with me. They actually came to an event that I spoke at and um, you know, thanked me for my work on the case. Her, her siblings, her half siblings, are they're much older. They're in their 70s. I don't really have a lot of contact with them. Um, I think that me being this vocal about the case has been difficult for some of her older family members because they believe that there really isn't going to be justice because she's dead and you can't ever undo that. I mean, some, they've told me that, and I understand that they also are very, very religious and believe that Melissa is, you know, her soul is in heaven and that, and, and that she's fine. And they're going to see her again and all of those things. And that's what gets them through the day. And I respect that. And so, um, I, I continue to do this work and try to be very respectful of the parameters in which they've set.
1: And you, uh, obviously don't have any insight on, who the parents ever, who, like who her mom ever thought might've been responsible for this or, or any cousins or anything?
2: So Melissa's mom, Marianne was very, very close to the original lead detective on the case, JC Ryder, whom I have a, you know, we talk every single day and have for years. And so I have that insight, um, from him about Marianne and really she just leaned on him and law enforcement. I don't really think she had anybody in mind. You know, she didn't want to believe that this had happened to her only child as it was. She did want justice, but I I don't think she ever really, you know, knew for sure and some of the other suspects were developed after she had passed away.
0: We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor.
1: And a thank you to our sponsors. Back to the program.
0: Now it says here in, in one of the, um, I guess, summaries of the book that you've gained some of the attention of some dangerous people. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about that?
2: I can. Um, there are several people that I've communicated with in prison um, who were suspects in Melissa's case. Um, you know, Charles Ray Vines, he was a serial killer from Fort Smith. He was into necrophilia. Just really not a good person. He's deceased. Um, there's Travis Crouch. He's a serial rapist, um, very dangerous man that's in Colorado. But in addition to that, a tip came in last year um, in the, to us, to my documentary team about the Witt case. And um, it was a, a woman that came forward who said that she had starred in a death fetish pornography film, um, where she had been strangled and she was asked to wear a Mickey mouse watch like Melissa had been wearing. And so obviously we, um, we needed to know everything that we could about that. And I have spent the past year working undercover along with law enforcement in the death fetish community to gather all the information that we can, um, about the movies that were made that seem to be made after, Melissa Witz, you know murder and um that's that's created a, a pretty um scary situation for me um there's a screen man that goes a, a screen name that goes by horror man and um despite all my efforts to protect my true identity online you know vpn all those kind of things he found me the real me and sent me flowers to my home um he's emailed me it's um, if I sound a little nervous talking about it, it's because it's um, pretty scary to think that, I, that that's happened. And then um, he doxed me in the community and gave out my real information. And um, that's a continuing battle. But um, I decided the best way to combat that was to write a book about it. And so that's coming out in October.
1: That is crazy. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not trying to make light of this. I'm actually curious because I think it provides a little bit of insight. Uh, what kind of flowers did he send you?
2: Well, he didn't have very good taste. You know, those really ugly, like spray painted, multicolored flowers that you can get that are like they, they come with the tulips and the, and, and the carnations. It, it, mm. it, it seemed kind of funerally. Um, mm. It was it was pretty upsetting. Um, And then I've started receiving emails after that from people like the Vermilion Strangler, um, Necro Girl X, you know, that are very, um, very, you know, threatening to burn my house down. It's it's really not been a good experience. Um, I've learned a lot about that kind of community. And it's, you know, I'm pretty confident that there are real killers that roam among those communities.
1: You mean these online communities?
2: Yes, the online communities. Oh, definitely. I mean, th- these are people who fantasize about murdering women. They, they write stories about strangling them, shooting them, hanging them. Um, they film videos. They, you know, make artwork. You know, there's a fine line between fantasy and reality. And um, this is not a, a group of stable people in this community at all. And at any given time in the whole world, there's about 100,000 people that are into, you know, what's considered to be necroporn. And it's, it's extremely frightening. And they've sent me lots of information, you know, kind of alluding to, to the fact that they might know something about Melissa's murder. And it's, it's just been something that we had to look at, but it's, it's been, um, it's been a, a journey.
1: And have you alerted law enforcement to this horror man or any of the other individuals that have expressed or stated or shown interest in uh, Melissa's murder?
2: I have. So um, Fort Smith Police Department is aware. Um, I filed some reports with the FBI, and uh, much of what they're doing online is illegal. It depends on the you know your city, state, or your country, and so we've gathered that type of information. But authorities are aware horror man in particular wrote a story that was so similar to what happened to Melissa. He talked about stalking a girl in a bowling alley parking lot. And um, I, you know, I turned that over to authorities. And I I think it's important to mention that once they realized that I was, you know, I'd gone undercover with these screen names and I was pretending to be one of them. Right. Um, When they figured out who I was Three of the online communities shut down. They took the websites down. And so they're hiding something. What that is, I don't know. Is it, is it, and I don't want to say, is it just the necroporn because that's horrible in and of itself? Is it human trafficking? Is it murder? I, I, I don't know.
1: Yeah. Right. I mean, is it, is it one of those or all of those and then add in a a few others?
2: Yeah. And I I think the reality is, is that, you know, out of those 100,000 people, I mean, you're looking at five, 10, 15 could be really into something that's much worse than just fantasy. And, um, anyway, it's, it's something that, um, it has to be talked about. And, um, and that's, you know, that's what I'm starting to do because it was a part of the WIT investigation.
0: And what do the police, um, that you've been working with, uh, say about that, Have they told you information on that? Have they actually been able to identify that uh, horror man?
2: We have been able to track horror man down. So that's been a good thing. And so the authorities in his community um, will be dealing with some of the things that happened and that that's a good thing. As far as being able to tie this community to the wit case, you know, I wish we, I could say that we did, but we have not been able to, you know, make, make that connection but i think it's important that people know about it because um i think that there's many things that can be found in that community and there's lots of movies about about girls that have been murdered that you know we we think are after they're they're making these movies after real crimes you know you could argue well it's just a movie but you know we're this is not normal stuff this this is pretty frightening
0: yeah And, uh, tell us about, about your book. You mentioned that, uh, you're writing
2: another book. I am. Um, there's, so the the girl I never knew is the first in the series of who killed Melissa Witt. And so the second book comes out October 28th. Um, it's called strangled. I co-wrote it with, um, Alicia Lockhart. She is, um, who came forward with the tip and I've worked with her for the past year. Um, really looking at taking a closer look into the death fetish community. And then the third, there's a third book coming and it'll come out in 2023.
1: Wow. So the second book is more of a deep dive into that death fetish community.
2: It is. It's um, all about the death fetish community, what we uncovered, what we experienced. Um, You know, we want the, we want the readers to decide for themselves what they think. And, and then I do talk about um, in strangled, you know, I start leading up to the third book, which is called Hypnotized, which is going to go into the unnamed suspect in the Wit case. And so my hope is that this series will launch. It'll be out there. It'll be as well received as the girl I never knew has been, and that more information would keep coming in about Melissa's case.
1: That's great. Yeah. Fantastic work with that. I love the long-term plan. Yeah. I love the, uh, the trilogy of books, which enables anybody who is interested not only in melissa's unsolved murder but how to go about what you did and where that leads you and then how to deal with that as well i think it's almost like this true-to-life instructional manual
2: well i you know what i wanted it to be is really kind of all those things that you're saying I, i wanted people to understand just how dedicated we've been to the Wit case um just how much we want to see justice but i also want people to realize that behind every cold case are the kind of things that you're going to read about you're going to have the red herrings you're going to have the the horrible horrible suspects that come up and it, none of them are going to be the ones that committed the crime and so i want people to do that deep dive to understand it's not as easy as it you think it is by watching a television show
0: Is there anything else that you'd like to mention about uh, Melissa's case?
2: I think um, the most important thing that I always want to mention is that there's no piece of information that is too small. You know, we have people that are reading the book that are all over the world. And, you know, people move every day. They've moved out of Arkansas. And if you've got some information, even if you don't think it's important, we really want people to come forward. They can either call the police department in Fort Smith or they can get a hold of our team at whokilledmissywitt.com. We're really easy to find and get the information and we will turn it into law enforcement. Um, that's the most important thing that I could say um, in this case. And, you know, that's one of the things that I wanted to have happen with the book. And that has happened. You know, our, our phone lines have just blown up and we're just grateful for every call. It may not lead to justice in the case, but we want people to have the courage to come forward
1: and in your investigation this is my last question in your investigation did you get any indication that this person might have told somebody about this that this there might be more people out there that know about this or did you get the impression that it was done and this person hasn't spoken a word
2: i don't think they've spoken a word i don't think they have um confessed it to anyone but i believe and so do law enforcement that i've been in contact with the killer on multiple occasions we we firmly believe that at this at this point in time i am the only living person who's been able to communicate with every suspect i've even the ones that aren't in prison i've hunted down i've hunted one down in nebraska talk to him and and that's a unique position to be in and i have a responsibility to try to record all that information in one place and that's really another motivation for the books but i believe that i talk to the killer pretty regularly i really do